Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello everybody, welcome to GradCast, recording from the Grad Club here at Western University in London, Ontario. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I'm joined by co-host... Joseph Donahue. All right. And today we are here with Mike Aloisio. Hello, Mike. Hello. Um, and Mike is a history major... PhD? Uh, history not PhD, yes. Sorry, this is not undergrad anymore. I sometimes revert back to my old ways. I'll let it go this time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what you study. Uh, I study black healthcare activism in the uh, first part of the 20th century, about 1900 to 1930, give or take, and uh, focusing in the uh, urban industrial Midwest, uh, specifically Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit. Um, it's an interesting topic. It's one I really care a lot about. Um, I'm just sort of looking at the different ways African Americans during that period sort of uh, mobilized resources and, and, and advocated for uh, not just better health within their communities, but uh, better access to health care and, and sort of uh, altering this idea of, uh, of African American inferiority in, in terms of health. So set the scene for me here. Like, what was life like back in this time? Oh, gosh, that's a very broad question. Um, in terms of healthcare, Let, Let's just paint the picture of like what, what's going on in America at this time. Okay, so early 20th century America, um, it's not quite um, as rumble-tumble uh, established as, as we would think about it now. Um, and in 1900, the majority of the African-American population in the country is actually living in the South. Um, there are... Uh, small but established communities in a lot of northern cities, uh, especially the larger ones like Chicago, like uh, New York, um, Cleveland, Detroit, places like that will have smaller ones, uh, but still nevertheless established. Uh, in the South, racial segregation is, uh, is, is pretty well um, codified and, and established. Um, there's a firm understanding in terms of social code, sort of, sort of unspoken rules um, about how the two races, black people and white people, are supposed to interact in terms of propriety. Um, in the North, those rules also exist. They're somewhat different depending on region and um, depending on each individual city. Um, I don't know. It, uh, actually, one of the interesting things is like sort of Rayford Logan, who's this guy who sort of studied African-American life at the turn of the century, sort of described the period as sort of the, the nadir of black life in the United States. Um, sort of that point where racial violence was at its peak and sort of legal equality, social equality was at its, uh, at its lowest. Um, so maybe that's sort of an answer to your question about what black life was like at the turn of the century, the first part of the 20th century. So Rough times. Basically at that time it was like as bad as it got. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, you're reluctant to sort of say, oh, well, this time is worse than that time is, is uh, sort of the failure of Reconstruction worse than the, 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 the deprivations that happened during slavery. Um, but sort of when we think about it, when we think about sort of what was promised and what was taken away, um, it was not, not, a, not a good place to be. Okay. There was a lot of challenges and a lot of, uh, a lot of sort 
or you know problems in place. So to rephrase that, I guess it was very hard, very uh, hard. at that time. Yeah, yeah, and there I, was a lot of problems. Yeah, the, I, the civil rights movement is the '60s, right? So we got like another 30 years before this kind of happens. That's actually a really good question. Um, one of the things that we sort of talk about when we talk about Black history, um, especially in the 20th century, is we have this debate between sort of a long civil rights movement and a short civil rights movement. The short civil rights movement is sort of the traditional one uh, that happened sort of in 1954 to 1964, you know, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, uh, and then to the Civil Rights and Voting, Rights Act, Voting Rights Acts of 1964, you know, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X is sort of his harsher counterpoint or more aggressive counterpoints. Uh, not harsher, that's not the right way to put it. Um, and, and then we had sort of this question about this long civil rights movement, which is uh, sort of what I tend to talk more about. It's this idea that the struggle for civil rights um, is a longer struggle. It sort of can trace its origins back to the beginning part of the 20th century. Um, and it's broader, it's more inclusive. It's not just looking at sort of the kinds of uh, political equality, equality in law that we sort of see with the Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts, but it's looking towards social and uh, like socioeconomic and, and, and uh, equality, so sort of social justice. Um, I think Martin Luther King talked about sort of, you know, um, the civil rights movement, the point of the struggle isn't just, you know, one law or one set of laws, but rather to address sort of the, the, the evils present within the very structure of American society. I should mention right now that it is February, and that means it is Black History Month here in Canada, which I just learned is... Also in the States. Also in the States. All right. Here in North America, in Canada and the States. Um, So it is Black History Month, so this is a very relevant episode for that right now. Um, I have a couple of questions here for you that, unfortunately... Um, you were supposed to be interviewed by one of our other hosts, Ramina. It was going to be your first time. I'm sorry you can't be here, Ramina, but we are asking your questions, so you're here in spirit with us. Um, so I guess to start things off, really, um, what sparked your interest uh, in this topic? It's a very it's a very specific topic, and you said you are quite passionate about it. So um, It was one of those things where it's, sort of, it's a case where a topic, an area of study sort of finds you. I was doing my MA out in the University of New Brunswick, and I was definitely interested in American history and sort of the period, but I sort of didn't have a specific idea of what I'd wanted to look at. Um, sort of African American history had, had interested me. And so when I was casting about for what my MA thesis uh, would be about, something that I would want to you know, write 100 pages about and do some archival work on, um, this idea of this one black hospital in Detroit that I'd read about in another book um, had, had sort of stuck with me, and I was wondering what 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 the deal was there. Like, you know, what had happened? Who were these people that found it? And you know, and and so I did that for my MA thesis. And as I'd done that research, sort of these broader questions, these larger issues, had sort of you know popped up. Like, you know, okay, well these people are you know they're starting a hospital, but they're also talking about this and they're also talking about that. And and this hospital seems to mean you know for the black doctors there and for the patients. Oh, it's just a place to be healed. But for the broader community, it sort of starts to take on this symbolic power. And, and, and from there, I kind of, you know, took away these, these broader questions. So when it came time to, to do a PhD and to sort of look at something I would want to spend five, six, plus seven years on, 
um, these things stayed with me and, and so I came here and I was working with Professor McKellar and we were sort of talking about these things and she seemed to be really really excited about the project as well and and so here I am being interviewed by you guys <laughs> awesome so what symbolic meaning did this hospital or these hospitals I guess take on so it was a place of healing for some people but to the broader community what well it when we think about hospitals now, we sort of, they're, they're, especially in Canada, they kind of have this mundane quality to them. They're very commonplace. Not to say that the stories or the things that happen to people there aren't dramatic and traumatic and life-changing. Um, but for the African-American community at the time, you have to remember that sort of, again, going back to this idea that it was the nadir of, of black life in the United States. I mean, African-Americans were regarded as an inferior um, peoples. Um, this is the era of scientific racism and, and sort of Darwinian, social Darwinian theory, um, eugenics, sort of they would point to African Americans and they would say these are an inferior people. We can look at their you know, high rates of disease and death, we can look at sort of their stunted growth, all these different things. Anything from phrenology, which is reading bumps on the head to sort of measure intelligence, to, to you know, even wackier theories. Um, I mean, people at the time were talking about uh, how African Americans were descended from a separate, sort of unknown racial ancestor, and they were a different species than white people. Um, so, when they look at hospitals and they look at like this or that specific hospital that's opened, operated, um, administered by African Americans, um, these places become not just places to heal, places to train doctors and nurses. It also becomes a, a, a symbol of African Americans, the community's interest in its own health and its own ability to to be healthy. So so in that way, the hospital is one part of a broader symbol, symbolism of uh, a, a different kind of African American body that's healthy, that's capable, that's equal to the white body. Um, it's just sort of a representation of it in brick and mortar uh, or building. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I do agree. Hospitals, to me, I mean, I was kind of brought up in hospitals. My mom works in healthcare, so it's like I get more, I guess, nice feelings in a hospital probably than the average person. Um, and I take a lot of care in hospitals. Like when you know something terrible happened last year, I went to University Hospital here, okay. just to the cafeteria and sat there to feel better because that's a place of comfort for me. Right. So I, I guess it is a place of, of scientific forward motion. It's a place of healing, and it's also a place of, of I guess both independence as well as as well being. So it's, uh, yeah, I guess I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so are there any specific Black activists that did play a huge role in healthcare reform? Oh, the black population. Uh, a lot of them. There was a lot of them, um, and far too many to name. Um, one of the things to sort of uh, to think about. I mean, if we want to talk about the first black hospital, the first hospital that was not just for African Americans, but you know, founded and uh, administered, run, constructed by African Americans. Uh, we're talking about Providence Hospital in Chicago, which opened in uh, May of 1891. And one of the chief driving forces for that was uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. by the name of Daniel Hale Williams, who was sort of the preeminent black physician of the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, so 
Uh, I mean, he started this whole idea of sort of African Americans being able to to run and found their own their own hospitals, and and I mean, the reason he was able to do that isn't just because of sort of you know him being this special guy, which he certainly was, but also because he was the kind of person that could sort of mobilize a community. Um, and that's always the thing to think about when we think about these specific places, or even healthcare activism as, as a broader uh, broader movement, is that it's community movement. You need everybody on board, or a large group of people on board. So, so he'd be one guy. Um, uh, you can look towards uh, Nathan Monroe Work, who was a statistician working out of Tuskegee, uh, Tuskegee Institute, um, in the 1920s. And he was sort of somebody that said uh, he was c- compiling sort of you know facts and figures about you know sort of African American life in the United States, and he was looking at sort of the stats about you know rates of morbidity, mortality uh, among black populations, and he was sort of one of the people that started to say the way to correct this is through knowledge, through information, and that was one of the driving forces to get National Negro Health Week, um, which started in 1915 and sort of grew from there, and by the 1930s, uh, late 1930s, the federal government was involved in sort of popularizing it um, and giving it the kind of money that it needs to, to you know, get going. So those are two big names. I mean, those are two big things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, like, so many people that are sort of, you know, uh, small but very important within their communities. I mean, you can talk about your Alexander Turners or your... Uh, was this black doctor in Detroit um, who's spent a lot of time getting Detroit's first black hospital off the ground. People like that. So, I mean, it, it's an embarrassment of riches. I guess I'm a little confused here because I'm looking at it with the uh, 21st century lenses. Is it that these black hospitals exist because they're not allowed, like black people aren't allowed to go into these other kinds of hospitals? Or is it that they're founding it with the mandate of trying to promote healthcare within the black community? Both. Um, one of the problems that was faced is that African Americans sort of had limited access to sort of the mainstream white hospitals. Depending on the community, um, depending on the specific hospital, what that access was like would vary. Um, some were sort of, they barred African Americans whatsoever as patients or as practitioners. Others would let them in as patients as long as they could pay, but uh, black doctors weren't allowed to practice within the hospital. Um, in some cases, it was just a case of, uh, of um, you know, sort of, they would give them access to like the free clinic, but not to sort of the, the wards, things like that. So it was, it was there was an uncertainty about about the access they would have within those mainstream hospitals, which was one of the issues on the patient side, on the practitioner side in terms of doctors and nurses. Very often, um, they would not be given access or whatever access they did have was very circumscribed. So they could admit patients, but they couldn't treat them there. Um, African Americans could serve as orderlies, but not as nurses. They couldn't get into the nursing schools. So, I mean, it was a, these places were starting off from a position of the access that we have here is not equitable, and it's not fair, and it's not reliable. Um, so they went from there, and then um, it's like the only way we can ensure this is to have these places for ourselves. And, and that decision in and of itself was a controversial one because uh, many African-American leaders were like, no, 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 if we open our own places, all that's going to do is have those white hospitals be like, well, you've got a black hospital now, so you don't need us. 
and they would close their doors completely. So every time one of these hospitals was going to start off or every community that sort of faced these challenges, the first question they asked is like, do we build our own place or do we turn all of our efforts towards fighting to break down the color line at you know, the big white tax-funded hospital down the street? Um, and, and the decision they reached varied from community to community, necessarily so. Did any of that door closing happen? I'm um, somewhat, yeah. Um, in Cleveland, Cleveland's white hospitals, as the by the nineteen by the nineteen thirties, when Cleveland opened its first hospital, I think it was Mercy Hospital. I think it opened in nineteen twenty eight or uh, late nineteen twenty eight or early nineteen twenty nine. Um, by the time that that had opened, um, Cleveland's white hospitals were sort of closing their doors, and they would spent a lot of time sort of you know staying integrated. Um, in comparison, especially to Chicago and Detroit. Um, so, I mean, that's one example. Um, in, in Detroit, as uh, the migration of African Americans into the city increased from about 1905, 1910 to 1930, um, the, the faster the pace of migration, the more and more the hospitals worried about being overwhelmed by African Americans that they regarded as not quite worth healing, um, the more and more they closed their doors to them. So, so you do see that happening where where that segregation or that uh, exclusion um, gets worse and worse over time. So with the opening of black hospitals and possibly the closing of doors at what I guess we'll call white hospitals, which yeah. I feel really weird saying. Well, it's just um, it's thinking about it as sort of like a yeah, mainstream healthcare system, but, but so weird. The, 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 the weird reality of it. Well, I mean, it's the weird reality of, yeah. of thinking about the healthcare system, which we sort of regard as so neutral yeah. or value neutral as, yeah. as being very reflective of sort of these kinds of social, yeah. sociocultural um, realities. I guess with all that going on, how did that influence public policy, I guess, within the U.S. and healthcare policy? Because um, it must have had some kind of dramatic effect over time. It, it, you see it sort of start to break down in the 30s and then more so after World War II when segregation in general starts to break down. Um, in terms of specific policies and specific, specific policies in specific cities, um, not really, like, and that and that's one of the problems. I mean, these hospitals are sort of left to, to to sort of sort their own own things out. It's only until they start to accept um, federal dollars in, in in a in a real way that sort of those kinds of policies get decided at a higher level. Um, some of some of hospitals in some places did decide um, for you know looking. You know, the reality of the situation that it was made more sense to accept black patients who could pay than to exclude them. Um, but it's really not until the 1940s that you sort of see a, a massive sea change in it. So, yeah, the term activism then, like, normally when I think of activism, I think of, like, you know, marches and things yeah. like this, you know, like civil disobedience and right. things like this. What does the term activism mean in the way that the black community was approaching the healthcare system? Um, well, when we think about activism, I mean marches and those sorts of things, sort of public displays are one thing. But we have to also think about it in terms of, of smaller but less visible but nevertheless uh, um, influential gestures. So um, activism might be marching, but it also might mean um, taking part in sort of the public displays that came along with National Negro Health Week 
or you know, this kinds of fundraising that happened to sort of support these hospitals. I mean, they would have auxiliaries, they would have fundraisers, they would have, uh, you know, everything. Um, ice cream sales to uh, baseball games, charity baseball games to support these hospitals. So, I mean, that, that counts as activism as well. And sort of uh, taking that kind of public positive stance um, to sort of not just, and, and it's important to remember it's not just about hospitals, but it's about, you know, sort of, Promoting better health within these African American communities, better attention to health, and and uh, I mean at the same time that they're doing this, they still are trying to advocate for uh, desegregation or integration of the uh, mainstream healthcare system. So I mean they're doing a lot of things. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. So I guess what uh, made you decide to focus your attention to? Um, Black healthcare in more of the Midwest rather than Southern United States or Canada, and well, what would have been the discrepancies between those three regions? Um, you know? In terms of Canada, you just you were dealing with a smaller population, so it created some different questions. Um, the South had sort of its own specific culture and its own specific issues. Um, I was interested already, I mean, I'd done my MA sort of looking at Detroit, so that's where those questions started. Okay. So once I wanted to sort of branch out, I mean, I wanted places that I could be comfortable comparing or sort of interrelated. And you sort of see, like, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit. I mean, there are places that are sort of re repository cities for the Great Migration. Uh, in the first part of the 20th century, um, they sort of have a similar the regionality to them um, and 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 it was just one of those questions of, of being able to comfortably sort of address these three places um, but I mean I have looked at places like Philadelphia and I have looked at places like New York somewhat as well and and you see sort of similar patterns um, happening there there too um, and it's just sort of I mean in the north questions about race and sort of um, how, how races, the races are going to interact. It, it's a bit different. It's not, like, it's not as established as it was in the South. Um, so as this migration sort of uh, crest and these cities sort of start to realize, oh, instead of having you know, an African-American population of 5,000 people like we had in 1905 and 1910, we have 20,000 people. How are we going to sort this out? Um, and, and what's the reality of this going to be? Um, so, so that sort of makes the, the, the negotiations that happened during the period also makes it really interesting, not just in terms of how it deals with healthcare, but everything else from labor policy to, to residential issues to, uh, to, to, to things like, oh, well, who's going to use this park or who's going to attend that movie theater, things like that, too. Seems like a lot of work to have to think about all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, a little bit, but, you know. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess one of the things that you alluded to earlier with kind of the racialization of medicine at the time. Yeah. Um, but there, I guess because there were different populations living in different places, there, there would have been different prevalences of different illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, so what would have been specific things that they would have had to have deal with that... Um, predominantly, or I guess, black hospitals at that time? Um, it, it depended. I mean, it, it wasn't that there was necessarily different diseases. It's just that African-American patients or African-American populations just tend to suffer more. 
and, and to a greater degree. So whites got tuberculosis, African Americans got tuberculosis, they just got it more and it was more of a problem. Uh, heart disease, things like that. Same, same, same thing where it's just a case where the, they had greater rates of it and then the mortality from, from these diseases was more, uh, it was higher. Um, so it wasn't a case where there was a specific illness that afflicted African Americans more than more than whites. I mean, later on we see that was something like sickle cell, but that's that's a bit of a ways off. Um, it was just more a case where it was the, the diseases were more frequent and 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 more severe. Was it because they weren't being treated at these other hospitals, or part of it was a question of treatment? I mean, there was fewer black doctors servicing the communities. Um, the availability of medicines were. Um, somewhat lower part of it was also poor living conditions um, and and worse jobs and sort of the sort of uh, the socioeconomic realities that come from that kind of marginalization um, so if you're if let's say you're a black man living in Detroit um, you work 12 hours at the foundry you're it's hot it's heavy work it's hard work um, you come home and you know, you're living in uh, a boarding house. You basically got a cot, and there's you know eight other people in that same room. If one of them has the flu or the cold, you're going to catch it. Um, you're going to be exhausted. You're not going to have the opportunity to go take the day off or, or or go to the doctor necessarily. And so you can see sort of see a situation where this after persists time after time um, is is going to be problematic, and you're. We're going to see other problems that sort of flow from there. I mean, um, when we think about health, it's it's really easy to sort of think about health as its own thing. But um, as, as historians sort of look at it as uh, it's like this nexus point of all these other issues. So it's like you know, political stability, economic stability, you know, sociocultural stability, like. And they all sort of touch on this area of health. Like, if, can you go to the hospital? Do you have, you know, the ability to take a day off when you're sick? Or, or you know, are you living in this crowded house with all these other sick people and the germs just being passed around? So, I mean, there, there's, there's that. Um, yeah, I can definitely see how that relates to your topic as well, right? Yeah. Like, you've got, like, a lot of different things going on in what would seem like one kind of topic. You've got yeah, all you kinds to, of different... Yeah, you have to consider all these different things, and it sort of, it makes it complicated and it makes it um, a bit challenging but it also makes it really really interesting because you sort of get to visit on all these other facets of, of black life in these places. It's a nice lens to sort of view everything from. So with with these hospitals they would have had to have been fully staffed. How big were they and how, how difficult would it have been at that time for a black person to become a physician? Um, would they have needed to have the same, probably the same title education as, as a person working at another hospital? And um, would having a hospital sort of as an epicenter of healthcare be more useful? Because back then, from my understanding, I read a lot of New England Journal of Medicine. Um, so what, what has been described is that there used to be more of physicians actually going to the home visiting people and but that's less efficient you can't right. get through as many people that way so it would probably have been better for these whole populations if they had a place to go sure a lot um, of questions at once sorry it's okay uh, one of the things to think about with medical practice at the time you're right there was more house calls and one of the reasons for that was that 
the state of medical technology at the time was such that there wasn't a lot that the physician could do in the hospital that they couldn't do at home. There wasn't a lot that they could do, period. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, the hospital was only starting to move towards the center of medical practice. Um, and medical science is sort of becoming more codified, more, more established. Um, I mean, in the 19th century, it's sort of like an open, it's wide open, and, and, and it's a lot of like, you know, whatever is medicine is based on efficacy rather than, than you know, uh, science or practice. Um, so that's one of the things. The hospital is only just starting to enter the or to move towards the center of medical practice. In terms of what doctors have to do to become doctors, that again only um, in 1911, 1910, 1911. There's this guy named Abraham Flexner. He goes around to all the medical schools in North America. Um, I think he actually comes to Western. Um, he gives it a failing grade. Oh. Or no, no, no. He no. says he says it's all right, but it needs some improvement. Okay. Oh. Don't kick me out. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, and he goes around, he does the hospitals, he does the medical schools, and he basically says, you know, here's the problems that are happening with uh, medical education. Um, you know, there's too many schools that are wide, that are uh, not meet up to snuff, they're not meeting standards, um, and they're basically just handing out their degree mills, they're handing out diplomas to anybody that can pay. Um, there's too many hospitals that aren't up to standards. Um, they're basically houses with beds and, and people that are doctors and nurses or claiming to be doctors and nurses that are staffing them. Um, so he proposes all these changes and, and that takes over in the, by the end of the 1920s, um, which sort of changes what you need to do to become a doctor. You, and along these lines you also have um, things like licensing, which sort of really uh, takes off in the first part of the 20th century. You have things like the AMA, American Medical Association. Um, that are sort of helping to enforce this. Um, so African-American physicians at the, be the turn of the century um, have a bit more of an access to becoming doctors than they do by the 1920s and 1930s because it's a bit easier to sort of get that training. Um, I think like in the 1870s, if you wanted to become a doctor, the, the surest way was to sort of apprentice yourself to somebody who was already a doctor, and they would teach you what they knew. Uh, so you learned how to be a doctor the same way you learned how to be a cobbler or a uh, bricklayer, whoever, whatever. Um, and then, I mean, uh, the same thing would happen with nurses, except that was a bit more, by the 1920s especially, a bit more um, structured, and you would have these schools, and, and this, the hospital was becoming, again, central and central, more central to how, how these things would work. Wow. All right, well. I think that's about all the time we have. So oh, okay, I, I hope I answered your questions. I <laughs> no, mean, you definitely oh, did. Okay, it's so relevant. Yeah. You know, like I'm much yeah. more empathetic now to just the idea of Black History Month. Like, yeah. you know, not to say that it was a bad idea ever, but no. you know, just you know, putting no. ourselves in that kind of context, looking at it back, and yeah. just seeing how far we've come. Like, maybe if we could just touch on something briefly, like. Are you like? How are you feeling about the current state of healthcare within um, the communities? That's it's, that's really interesting. I mean, we still see these racial disparities in terms of rates of health, um, not just in the United States, but in in, in uh, Canada as well. I mean, so I mean, there's still problems there. There's still uh, issues to be faced. Whether or not there's there the same kinds of uh, structures that are sort of driving those problems. Um, it's kind of hard to say, but um, I mean, it, 
there's still things to be addressed. There's, I mean, there's clearly still, you know, um, again, coming, going back to that long civil rights movement, not just stretching, you know, the struggle for civil rights and social justice backwards in time, but also taking it forward mm-hmm. and saying that's not done. These fundamental problems still exist, and there's still things that we still need to talk about. And and so we still know that they exist. There's still work to be done. There's still progress to be made. I guess that would be. Uh, I feel like that's right. a better positive note to end on. Yeah, okay, definitely. awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. Right. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Everybody, be sure to tune in next week. Thanks for listening to Gradcast. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback, or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at Gradcast Radio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com, and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.